0: Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. going to finish off 1 Timothy 2, which we started two weeks ago. The gospel sets women free. And so part two of this little two-parter on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll start again with this, you know, crazy-looking passage where Paul says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And it's like, ah, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. And of course, passages like this are fodder for a culture who say... Christianity is very sexist and oppressive towards women and the Bible is sexist and oppressive to women and then it gets even weirder though after this it goes on in the next verse and it says for Adam was formed first then Eve and Adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner Uh, and which I mean just has this connotation that women are more gullible than men and that is well we'll get into that later in the sermon and then we have this wonderful, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Literally, this is one of my favorite. But women will be saved through childbearing. Hallelujah. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with uh, propriety, okay? So this is a very odd kind of passage. And it, there's, you know, it's no wonder that many people outside of the church and our culture today would look at passages like this and say, the Bible is sexist, Christianity is sexist, and oppressive to women, and all sorts of things. And, uh, and the, again, so they have this passage. So we're going to get into this a little bit, and in the end, it's, I want you to see, there's actually something in this particular phrase, there's actually something so beautiful, so simple, and so wonderful, we're going to get there. But before we go back to this passage, I want us just to step back, and let us remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul... If we forget about this passage for just a moment, that the apostle Paul was incredibly progressive in his day in his views about women. Okay, he was incredibly progressive, and elsewhere in the New Testament, he directly contradicts some of the things we see in First Timothy chapter two. For example, in uh, in Romans chapter sixteen, Paul has this lengthy uh, greeting to fellow leaders and Christians in the Roman church. And uh, right at the beginning of the greeting, he says this, Greet Priscilla, who's a woman, and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now, we just kind of read over that, and we go, oh, co-workers, and we don't, we don't even pay attention. You have to remember, remember that in New Testament times, Roman society was extremely patriarchal, which means men were in charge and women stayed home, Okay? Roman society was very, very patriarchal that way. Women stayed home, took care of the home, cleaned. They were not involved in the politics and the business. The man was in charge of all that sort of stuff. But Paul specifically says, my co-workers. And he also includes Priscilla in that. Okay, really important not, uh, they risked their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches, of the Gentiles are grateful to them. I want you to notice one other thing. Everywhere in the New Testament, it happens here, it happens in Acts, where Priscilla and her husband Aquila are listed. Priscilla's name comes first, which is also fascinating, because in those days, uh, what they would have done, the convention was, you would put the husband's name first. This uh, really suggests some sort of uh, you know, leadership, higher status sort of uh, thing going on. Now, Priscilla, and by the way, I could show you a number of different things in the New Testament. I want to take you to a story where Priscilla does something, which again, in these days, don't miss this, because in those days, women were very much on the, on the bottom beneath uh, the men in terms of social, uh, you know, social stuff and, and status. We read this fascinating story in Acts chapter eight, 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, so he was educated, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, okay? So he has a few things going for him. He's a man, and he has education, and he knows the scriptures well. So this is a man who in the church has significant status, okay? Now I want you to notice what happens next. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So he's preaching. He's a good speaker. People like to hear him. When Priscilla, notice her name again by Luke this time, who's a a close uh, friend of Paul's. When Priscilla and Aquila, notice Priscilla's name again, is listed first, which again in those days is a big deal. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. In other words, they corrected him. Okay? This is a big deal. Again, we miss it. And then, of course, you read First Timothy 2, and people in the culture say, See, the Bible's sexist. Christians are sexist. Christians are oppressing women. Sometimes, unfortunately, Christians have been on that side of things. But when you look at this, this is, this is really unbelievable for that day and age for a woman to correct a man, an educated man, is really incredible. And I'm not just making this up or just a bunch of modern scholars, 500 years ago, John Calvin, who we wouldn't generally think of as himself being super progressive with regards to women, he wrote this in his commentary on Acts. He admits this. This is John Calvin, the 1550s. We see that one of the... Speaking of this passage in Acts 18 with Priscilla, he says, we see that one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a what? A woman. Okay? So this is... And by the way... For most of church history, it was in most of the ancient commentaries and stuff, they all agreed that there were these examples in the New Testament where women would correct male leaders, which again, for that day and age, was crazy. So don't don't miss this. And of course, because the early church was radical about women in its day. I'm going to show you some theology yet. I'll show you just one more example, really neat one, if we go back to Romans 16 Uh, And I wish I had to cut a bunch of stuff out of the sermon for this because otherwise we would have been here too long. But uh, some of the other people that Paul greets, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, who's a woman, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. He considers these people, including Junia, to be apostles like him missionary leader teachers in the church. The early church and Paul had incredibly radical views about the equality of women. For that day and age, when women stay home, clean the house, that's all you do. That is what the Roman society, how the Roman society saw women. The early church and Paul were incredibly radical and progressive. And of course, this was an outworking of Paul's theology. Okay? The reason the early church was so radical about the equality of women in the church was because Paul had a radical theology. And we read in his climactic statement in Galatians, builds to this wonderful, powerful, sort of how Paul sees the earth kind of shaking truth of what Jesus did at the cross... He says that because of Jesus, there's no longer a hierarchy between Jews and Gentiles. See, before Jesus, the Jews saw there being a hierarchy. There's Jews, there's the circumcised, the people who follow the law and have the temple, and then there's Gentiles. They can't follow God, or they're at least way behind us. But Paul says because of Jesus, there's no longer a hierarchy between Jews and Gentiles. It's Jew and Gentile equal. And there is neither slave nor free, which again, that... In that society is a huge deal, because they, they, they believed slaves were actually lower, not just economically, but that masters were somehow uh, uh, better. Um, you know, it's not just higher, not, not just wealthier, but they're, they're better than their slaves. And Paul says, no, because of Jesus, slaves and masters, that's radical, you know, really radical stuff. And then he says there's no male and female, which he's not making a statement about getting rid of gender. He's talking about there's no longer this hierarchy. We live in a society, in his day, he's saying, they live in a society where there's this strict, strict hierarchy. And he says, uh-uh, thanks to Jesus Christ... Men and women are equal before the cross. Now, if we go a couple of verses just before this, we're going to see something really, really amazing. Again, for, for their day. For our day, it's not as, as groundbreaking because thanks to Paul, we have 2,000 years of leading up to a much, a, a, it's a much better for us in our society. But here's what he says in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now. Of course, us modern people, when we read the Bible, whenever we see sons, we just change it to children because we know it includes women, and that's actually a, a, a good thing to do. That's a, that's a great thing to do. When you read the Bible and it talks about, you know, something about some promise to the sons of God, you know, gladly take that as children of God and it's to men and women. But in this verse, okay, in this verse, there's actually something special going on here. He's saying, We are you are all, including the ma- the, the women. Even the women are sons of God. Now, why would women want to be sons of God? We have to remember that in Roman culture, in Jewish culture of that day, sons got all the inheritance. Everything went to the son. Daughters didn't get anything. In fact, uh, uh, women were married off at a young age. I'm going to get to that later. Women in this society were often married off around 14 or 15 why? Because without a man, a woman didn't have status. I'm not saying that's how it should be. I'm saying, aren't you glad you're living today? Okay? Amen. And some of the men, I'm not even actually you that. Sure, you should be nodding yes, you barbarians. Okay? Aren't you glad you're living today? By the way, things have not gotten worse since then, have they? It's better to be alive now than it was back then. Okay? But a woman had no status... Had no way of supporting herself, or it was much more difficult anyway, if she was not embedded with a man. like And like it's in, in not owned, but married off to a man, okay? So sons got all the inheritance. Sons had the power, okay? Now Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, women equal inheritors of all the promises and the inheritance equally along with men. This is super powerful. And then he goes on to say, back to this verse, I just took out one verse because so that I can fit it all on there, but he goes, he goes through and then we get to this part, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is incredibly radical. In fact, it was so radical that it caused some problems in the early churches, including in Timothy, which I don't have time to expound on here, but some women in certain places were kind of getting ahead of themselves. They were so pumped about this, okay? And sometimes it caused problems, okay? But I don't want to even get into too many of the, of the specifics there. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2, okay? So what I'm showing you here is big picture of Scripture. Scripture and Paul have this radical theology of men and women being equal before Christ, equal inheritors of the promise, So then we come to 1 Timothy, and it's like, wow, well, what's going on here? Okay? What on earth is going on here? A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. Okay? So this is another example of something I'm calling today situational scripture. Okay? Very important. Situational scripture. Every verse in the Bible is not a universal statement. Okay? Every verse in the Bible is not a universal statement. There are lots of passages in Scripture that are spoken to specific situations. We've talked lots about this. For example, we've talked about suffering lots here at Crossview. And when you go through the Bible, you will find lots of different perspectives on suffering. So if you read Genesis chapter 50, Joseph will tell you, all the bad things that happened to me were part of God's plan for something better. Well, that's very encouraging. And from that, we can take, there are a lot of bad things that happen to us that need to happen to us in order for good things to happen to us. That's great. Then you get to the book of Job, and the book of Job gives a very, very different, almost opposite perspective. The book of Job shows us that some suffering just sucks. There's no bigger plan. In Job, there is no big plan that happens. It is senseless, horrible suffering. His friends try to give him good You know, oh, God must have a reason. You must have sinned. Eventually, God has to rebuke them. And in the end, we just find out sometimes suffering just happens. The book of Proverbs gives us another perspective on suffering. You read the book of Proverbs, and it tells you over and over and over again that people who do bad suffer. Well, that's also true, okay? If you, uh, okay, what do I pick on here so I don't get anybody in trouble? I'll just pick on smoking, but hey, if you smoke, go for it, okay? Okay? Maybe not go for it. Maybe that's the wrong message to give. Don't start. But if you're already done, it's not the worst thing. Deal with other stuff, right? But, I mean, if you smoke, there's consequences, right? Like, like you know. okay, let's just leave that you do bad things, right? And bad things can happen to you. That's true. Proverbs is right. You do bad things, and bad things come back and hit you. There's, there's there's consequences. But Ecclesiastes gives us another perspective. And Ecclesiastes has a bit of an argument with Proverbs. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Bad people and good people both suffer, which is also true. So you say, well, which one is right? Is it Joseph? Is it Job? Is it Proverbs? Is it Ecclesiastes? They're all right. Situational scripture. There are times when the bad things in your life need to be there because they're part of some bigger plan of something God's doing. There are other times in this world when evil happens and it's just plain senseless and you shouldn't try to help You you shouldn't be telling other people to to make sense of it because then you're just being like Job's friends. And there are times when if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. And there's times when the best people, like Ecclesiastes says, good people also suffer. It's situational scripture. The same thing is happening here. By the way, I have another fun situational scripture. There's so many. But I'll I'll just pick one here. I just have one more. Luke 9. Jesus has this great uh, interaction with his disciples. Okay? Okay? His disciples freak out. Master, said John. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. He's not from our denomination. He can't can't be right. Like, we are the one true Christian denomination, right? So we told him to stop. Don't you dare cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And then Jesus said, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Okay, isn't that a great statement? I just love it. So anybody who's not actively opposing you, it's on your team. Two chapters later, exactly the opposite. They have another interaction. And Jesus says the exact opposite. I put both passages here. And this time Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. You say, what is Jesus? And this is where people in our culture, and some as Christians, we read these things and we say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, it's situational. There are times when this is exactly the right thing. There are times when it's whoever is not against you is for you. And there are times when Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's situational. It takes wisdom. And this is why we need each other as Christians. We need each other. We need lots of grace. We need lots of grace for other churches and other Christians because we're all trusting in the Spirit and in relationship with each other and praying and searching the Scriptures and wrestling with it because the, the Bible is, a spirit, is the Spirit-filled Word of God and it's, a, and it's a book of wisdom that we wrestle with just as we always have as they, throughout history. So, 1 Timothy 2 then is not making um, a universal statement and that's where Christians get in trouble. They're making a, it's, he's not making a universal statement about... All women always should be quiet and submissive. We see, you know, places where it's just not true. So he's speaking to a specific situation. So what's going on in First Timothy? What's the specific situation in the church at Ephesus, which is where this is happening? And I, I mean, we could take an, we could take a whole bunch of time. And we could go through the whole book, but one of the one of the main themes you will see right from the beginning. This is this is verse three, right after Paul introduces himself. The very first command he gives. The very first, this is the big statement of what this book is dealing with and what's happening, and then you'll see this theme right throughout the entire letter to Timothy, is there is a problem with false teaching. So the first thing he says after he introduces himself is he said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Okay? So why is Paul writing this letter? There is a problem with false doctrine. Now again, remember that the church at Ephesus is not a church like Crossview. It's not, you know, it's not two services, you know, a few hundred people, or some big church like you you see on the internet, or things like this. The church at Ephesus is some small little group. They don't have a building to meet in, other than home to home, okay? You're probably talking about a few dozens people, okay? Somewhere in there, maybe a hundred, I don't know, but small, think of a small group of people, house to house, they know each other. He says, you may command certain people, probably a very small group of people, not to teach false doctrines any longer, he goes on to say, or to, develop, or to devote themselves to myths, okay, more of this false teaching, and endless genealogies, I'd love to get into this, probably having to do with uh, some of the genealogies in Genesis, but there's all, they're making all kinds of weird teachings. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. This false teaching... Uh, uh, warnings go right through the book of Timothy. I'll just quickly show you another one. He says in chapter 4 again, he repeats himself throughout the book. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences, and on and on. And this is right through the book of 1 Timothy. There is a problem in the church at Ephesus with false teaching. That is why Paul is writing this letter, and he's very concerned. So Now, keep that in mind. There's a second thing now. There's a second string we have to pull together. So one string, one major stream of the teaching in the letter to 1 Timothy is this false teaching. Over and over again, he's warning about false teaching, false teaching. Watch out for false teaching. There's another thing that Paul is really concerned with in the letter to 1 Timothy, or his first letter to Timothy, and that is women. He is very preoccupied with women in 1 Timothy. So, in chapter two, which we're going to go back to, there's the whole thing about they need to be silent, they need to be submissive, they should never talk, blah, 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 the weird thing about childbearing. Then in chapter five, he takes almost an entire chapter to go on and on and on about the importance of young widows getting married. And us reading now, it just seems uh, uh, odd. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy 5. So I counsel younger widows, and this is part, I'm just taking one little excerpt out of like a 20-verse section. And he says, so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. So what on earth is going on with these women? By the way, and why is it specifically widows? Is that, is that odd? Okay, so let me explain that for just a moment. Why does he just say, so I counsel young single women, okay? You have to remember that in these days, in Roman times, in the, in this culture, women were married, off. well, girls, girls were married off at 14 or 15, okay? You were married off, and now your husband's going to take care of you for the rest of your life, okay? And in a sense, you know, owns you. He's in charge of you, okay? It's pretty crazy. You don't have a lot of... Single women. There's not a single women scene. Okay? There's not a single scene when all the girls are sent off by their dads to some mid-20s guy. Can you imagine some mid-20s? Those guys, those of you with 14 and 15-year-old daughters. Imagine a guy, 24, 25, coming to your house and wanting to date your daughter. I says, pardon? (laughs) Right? I says, pardon? That's where you get the t-shirt. I love this t-shirt. I got to buy it at some point. I'm not afraid to go to prison a second time. You know those t-shirts? <laughs> it's like, I'm not afraid to go to prison a second time. You're not coming around to talk to my daughter. You're 24, 25. These girls were being married off at 14. You don't have single women, lots of them. I mean, there are some, always, there's exceptions. But most of your single women, if, if you have single women, it's because they're widows. Okay? Someone, someone died, a man died. Okay, that's what's happening. now. Paul says, I counsel younger widows. He wants these single women to marry. Now, the interesting thing about this, because, of course, in our culture, it's like, well, that's the godly thing. Is this a situational scripture or is this a universal statement? All women need to get married. Well, it's interesting to me that this exactly contradicts, exactly opposite to what Paul spends an entire chapter saying in 1 Corinthians 7, which is this. And I just have one verse here, but you can go look up 1 Corinthians 7. It is an entire chapter devoted to Paul arguing that it is better to be single than to be married. And single people love to read that chapter. And married people love to just ignore that chapter. But in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8, he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But in 1 Timothy, he's saying, I counsel younger widows to marry. Why? Why? Because Scripture is situational. Many of, these pa- many of the passages, there are universal statements in Scripture, of course. Things like, do not murder. Okay? I've yet to find a good place where the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, you know, murder would be good right now. Okay? <laughs> Adultery is never good. Yet there, I'm not saying there are no universals. But so, there are so many Scripture passages that are situational. We wrestle with these things. And Paul is wrestling with specific situations. And in this situation, he's saying... Wow, why would you get married? And he has some interesting arguments in 1 Corinthians 7. Go, that's a devotional assignment for you this week. But in 1 Timothy 5, he's like, nope, they should get married. So what is different, what is different in Timothy that Paul is so concerned with false teaching and with women? Okay, what is going on in Timothy? Well, in terms of the women getting married, 1 Timothy 5, he actually explains why he wants these women to get married. And it's going to tie right in. We're going to see two of our streams coming together here. The stream of false teaching and the stream of women in the, Tim, in the letter to Timothy. Besides, he says this about the single women, the widows. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Now again, this is not a universal statement. Any Christian guy that takes this verse and says, yeah, those single women, you got to watch out for them. Single women, they're just, they're, they just get in the habit of being idle. No, no, Paul is talking to this place in time. I know lots of single women that do not have the habit of being idle or going about from house to house. And even if they did, going to house to house, that's fine. But what he says next, And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. Now the talking nonsense, we just read it in a modern sense, and we just think, oh, they're just babbling and gossiping and all sorts of stuff. Except no, what Paul is talking about to talk nonsense here directly has to do with all the stuff he's been talking about in Timothy about false teaching. Look what he says two verses later. This is not regular nonsense. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. Like, we just cranked the volume up, right? (laughs) Like, it's just, it's not like, oh yeah, they just talk a bit of nonsense, a bit of idling, blah, 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 and they're following Satan. (laughs) Okay, this is not just Nonsense. These women, this is all part and parcel. There's this little church in Ephesus and he's left Timothy behind to work with this church and this little church, what is it? Is it 50 people? Maybe it's 100, I don't know, but it's not a big church. They have, there's a few different homes they meet in, they know each other. They have a problem with false teaching and specifically some of these single women are involved in it. There's a group of younger widows who's involved with this. So here's what the, you know, Scholars have pieced together from what you can read in the book and uh, in the context and stuff of the day. What's going on in Timothy? We have false teaching in the church at Ephesus most likely being spread by a small group. Could have been, I don't know, four, five, six, seven. I don't know. A small group of, of wealthy younger widows who are going house to house, flaunting their singleness, maybe sexually. Okay? And into this specific situation, Paul, who with Junia says she's an amazing apostle. And Priscilla can teach educated, amazing speaker men. She's, she's a co-worker. But when it comes to Timothy, he's like, whoa. Okay, in this specific situation, he says, in this situation, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over man. She must be quiet. He's using very strong language. You're like, like why can't he just... Why can't he put in all these caveats? Like, Chris, you put caveats into your sermons. So many caveats. Half the message is caveats. (laughs) That's because I've gotten so many emails over the years that I just... uh... Caveat. That's an email. Caveat. Caveat. Okay? Remember, this guy is writing with a piece of bone and charcoal on a rolled-up scroll, okay? He didn't have a computer. He didn't have scads of time. He's making tents so he can eat at night. He's exhausted. He can't write after it gets dark. We don't, they don't write 300-page manuals in this day and age. They write short and sweet. Timothy knows him well. And so he is worried. This strong language is because he's worried about what's going on, and he wants to strengthen Timothy's hand. So he tells him, even though there's all kinds of other situations we can find in the New Testament where women aren't quiet, in your case, he says, they've got to be quiet, and they've got to be in full submission. And he goes on and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach her as to assume authority over man." He's doing this specifically for Timothy. Remember, Timothy is young. In fact, if we had time, I would show you a bunch of verses in the book of Timothy where Paul says to him, Paul is, him, is actually nervous even about Timothy. He tells Timothy things like, stay pure. Why? There's some wealthy, good-looking widows going house to house, spreading false teacher, you know, false teachings. Timothy's gonna, I mean, it's just, it could just be, ha, ah, ha, yeah. I mean, if she's pretty, I'll believe anything, right? That's what some of us guys are. Maybe most. Okay? So he's gonna strengthen this. I do not permit, you can show them the letter. None of these women, I don't want them in any way arguing around or getting around the corner. I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over men. He's gonna strengthen his hand as much as possible. Now he goes on to the next verse. For Adam, now he's gonna use a Bible example. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, some people take this verse and they go, huh, see? It is a creation principle that women are more gullible than men. See? Eve was deceived, not Adam. Okay, now, that is an example of where people who, who, if you think that way, and it's not bad, you haven't lost your Christianity. However, you're thinking in two parts of your brain. You have the theology part of your brain, and then you have, like, actual life. Because I'm going to tell you right now something that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt after 44 years of living, being married, having boys and girls, and just being in ministry and just living life. Is I'll tell you right now, women are not more gullible than men. Yes, you're right. Some of you are nervous. Because maybe you thought they were. Have you actually experienced life? Do you know, just read the news Just read the news. In politics, in Christianity, in business, over and over and over again, how often do we see men being the ones who are deceived first, being gullible, or being the deceivers? It happens all the time. Now, by the way, some of you want, oh, look at that, he's putting down men. He's just part of this culture, they just put down men and not women. Okay, so let me put down the women too. We're just all in the same boat. I'm not saying women aren't gullible. I'm saying any of you who is married, do you know how many marriages I have prayed with personally over 20 years of ministry where I've prayed with couples who are suffering financially or in some other way because of something stupid the husband did? Let me tell you right now, I've, I've also done it with couples where the woman has done something stupid. I'm going to tell you right now, God didn't make women more gullible than men. In fact, I can show you Bible stories. Let's start with Nabal and Abigail, otherwise known as Nabal, and Abigail. Nabal is a fool who just about gets his family killed, and Abigail is what? Wise. This is not a creation principle that every woman is easier to to deceive than men. Absolutely not. There are a lot of women I know where if I wanted to deceive that couple, I'm going straight to the hubby. (laughs) Just straight. You know, last year, our computer, our, we got our identity hacked last year. And it wasn't because of the dawn. Okay? I got a 1-800 number pop up on my screen, and I called it and gave them control of my laptop. Okay? I'm going to tell you right now. This is one story where, in this case, Paul is saying, yeah, the woman got deceived, not the man. okay. And it parallels what's happening in this situation. In Ephesus, it's the women driving this problem. In another place, it's the men driving the problem. I can show you lots of examples in the news where it's the men driving the problem. And if it was one of those other places, Paul could have used a different story from Scripture. Because there's stories in Scripture where the men are stupid and the women are wise. It's an equal, men and women, we are equally stupid before the cross. Okay? So now we get to the best part of this passage and my favorite verse. I would love to visit some of your homes at some point and see this up in your entryway. (laughs) Because we're biblical people. We're Christians. We should have Bible verses in our entryways. And I would love to come to someone's house when it says, as you come in, welcome here, but women will be saved through childbearing. And you go, what in the world? (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm not even repeating that. You know what's interesting about this one? In the Greek, because it's like, well, so what? Women who don't have babies aren't saved? Like women who have babies are going to heaven? Women who don't, oh, that's horrible. We obviously know that's not true. Right? In the Greek, it says, but women will be saved through the childbearing. We lose that actually in the, in the English. It's not talking about, see, in the English, we just read as women will be saved through childbearing. So, oh my goodness. Time to have as many babies as you can so you can go to heaven. Well, absolutely not. Like, obviously that can't be true. In the Greek, it's actually this. And if you have a Bible here and a pen, I would just write it right in. I always do it in my Bibles. When I get to 1 Timothy 2, I just write a the. Women will be saved through the childbearing. A single. In the Greek, this is in the singular. Through the childbearing. Now, What one childbirth might have changed everything and might be the way through which everyone is saved? Any of you think you might know? You can just throw it out there. This is a Sunday school answer. The answer is Jesus. Okay? You ever heard about that? I actually knew someone uh, uh, working in kids' men. And not here, but they would always As a few years ago, and they would obviously, every answer in Sunday school is Jesus, right? And this leader had, had a question that obviously surprised the kids, but they were like, they were, the answer was supposed to be squirrel. So they said, what's furry and has four legs and climbs trees? And the kids are, ho, oh, oh, ho, oh. ho, Okay, well, what is it? Jesus. And it's like, I know that he's the answer to everything, but not everything, right? But in this case but women will be saved through the childbearing. Actually, this whole complicated passage actually isn't that complicated if you just follow your spirit-led common sense. Here's what's simple. The primary message of the Bible is actually always simple. And actually, even if you don't know the context, you can go with your spirit-inspired common sense often when you just go with the answer, Jesus. First Timothy 2, 9-15, after all of that, what we end up with is, Jesus is the way of salvation, as opposed to the false teaching that's being spread. But you know what you love even more? The fact that Paul singles out women, but women will be saved through the childbearing. He's even saying that these women, who are spreading the false teaching that he's really concerned about, He's not writing them off. Even these women, he's saying, are ultimately, or will, or we hope we're working towards, will be saved by that same Jesus. He's not writing them off. I find that incredibly, powerfully encouraging. The primary message of the Bible is simple. Jesus saves and frees. I would also say a beautiful Encouraging final thought from this passage is this not only does Jesus save, not only does he save false teachers, can save them, okay? But I say something else here is Jesus wins. When Paul wrote that letter from a human perspective, you wouldn't have known who's going to win. We've got a tiny little church in Ephesus, just a small group of people, and we've got some influential women in this case, who are spreading some very devious teaching. This could be the end. Paul is concerned. He's writing with very strong language. This could be the end of the church. In that day and age, from a human perspective, you can't see how this is going to turn out. Here we are 2,000 years later. We're still reading Paul. Two billion plus people following Jesus. And we don't even know exactly what those women were teaching. Jesus saves. Jesus saves even the false teachers. And Jesus wins. Amen. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Next week we're going to start talking about some joy killers. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for showing mercy even to those false teachers. I'm hoping a bunch of them actually ended up getting saved after that letter was written. Whatever happened, we know that in the end, you won. Your gospel continued to spread in spite of false teachings and will continue to spread today in spite of false teachings and cultural pressures. Thank you for the mercy and grace we see in Paul's note that even these women will be saved the childbearing thank you for this family lord jesus thank you for your forgiveness and thank you that we can trust you in jesus name we pray amen thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what god is doing here at Crossview. a special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry it's because of you this ministry is possible If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.